I love breakfast. Breakfast is my favorite meal. I love uh, breakfast food. I, I love pancakes. I love biscuits and gravy. Uh, I love everything about breakfast, except I don't love that it's in the morning, okay? But I love everything else about breakfast. But hey, we know God's mercies are new every morning, right? Even on daylight saving time day. Um, he has new mercies ready for us, and he didn't oversleep this morning. Um, but I love breakfast food. But there's one breakfast food I love more than any other, and it's this. These are, um, well, they're donuts, but they're not just donuts. They are Long's Donuts uh, from Long's Bakery in Indianapolis. These are my absolute favorite. I think most of us probably love donuts, right? I mean, there's something about them. They're so, uh, you know, so sweet and, and so delicious. But there's something about this place in Indianapolis. Long's, the people at Long's have been doing this for 60 years, um, making these, I don't know what they, this black voodoo magic dust that they put in their donuts that make them so delicious and how they can be so, like, just a little crispy on the edges on the outside, but then really chewy on the inside and they melt in your mouth and they've got that um, real sweetness, but not overly sweet. They're so good. They're so good. And so um, uh, I just don't even know how to describe them. Um, but I have two of them, and um, I'm saving them for later for a special occasion. I'm not sure when it is. My mom lives by Long's Bakery on the south side, so there are two. There's one on the west side and the south side. Every time we go down there, she pretty much gives me uh, a dozen Long's donuts. And if she doesn't, then I've got to stop at the bakery afterwards because mom forgot my donuts, right? But um, I love them so much that here's, here's what happens. I've been known in the past, and this is uh, true confession time, uh, that when I had some Long's donuts and my daughters, when they were younger would say, Dad, can I have a donut? Uh, I've been known to actually go to the grocery store and buy them other donuts to give them so that I didn't have to share my lungs with them because their taste buds were young, they were immature, they didn't know, they didn't know the difference, they couldn't appreciate the crispiness on the outside and the chewiness on the inside and the subtle sweetness that comes that only Long's Bakery uh, can bring you. And so uh, I know, you should know, that if I decide to share my Long's Donuts with you, it's because I love you, first of all, I love you, and second, because I trust that you're going to appreciate them in the same way that I do, right? Well, we're in this series called Through the Lens, we're continuing today, and we're talking about the seven miracles of Jesus in the book of John, and uh, today we're going to look at what happens when a young boy decides to share something with Jesus, and it's multiplied beyond what he can even imagine. So open your Bibles to John chapter 6 if you have them with you. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you or you don't have a device that you can open it on, there should be one of these on the floor somewhere around you. You're welcome to pick that up and use it. John 6 is on page uh, 742 in that Bible uh, is where we'll start. If you don't own a Bible, by the way, uh, this is our gift to you. Take that home with you and, uh, and use it and read it and follow along with us. John 6 is where we're going to spend all morning. So uh, we've been using this map um, of Israel to kind of follow the life and ministry of Jesus as we walk through the book of John. And so I know some of you are having a hard time seeing it. Some of you maybe haven't been here before, so I'll just tell you this is Israel. Now, this area down here is called Judah. It's the southern part of Israel, uh, or Judea, sometimes called. This area up here uh, is Galilee. This is where Jesus has spent a lot of his time, um, lived most of his life up here. This is the Mediterranean Sea, or the Great Sea, you'll see it called sometimes in the Bible. Dead Sea down here, Jordan River flows between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Tiberias, or the Sea of Galilee up at the top. So just to give you a little orientation, that's Israel. That's where we are. So we've been using this map. And uh, at this point, in where we're going to start today, Jesus has been doing ministry for a couple of years, 
probably two years. Uh, And we know, we're going to see in our scripture, that it's almost time for the Jewish Passover festival again. We know that when Jesus started his ministry, in the first 40 days of his ministry, it was time for the Jewish Passover. So this is probably two years from when he started his ministry, probably from two years from the healing of the nobleman's son, if you remember that from two weeks ago. He's moved his ministry headquarters up here to Capernaum. So Jesus spent a lot of time early on down here around the Jordan River by Bethany and in the Judean wilderness. That's where he did a lot of his ministry. But he's now moved up to Capernaum. And you think, well, that's weird. Jesus had a ministry headquarters? What does that even mean? Because he didn't have like a 12-story building where everybody had cubicles and they, you know, but he did have a ministry and he had a very effective ministry because he was intentional about the way he did ministry. Jesus had a very intentional strategy in the way he lived his life and chose uh, the people who would follow him, was very careful about that. So he's moved his ministry and his home up to Capernaum. And uh, where he, uh, near where he healed the nobleman's son, that's where the nobleman was from. Uh, it's a Roman outpost there. Uh, he's chosen the 12 disciples. So that hadn't happened uh, in the first couple weeks of this series. So now he's chosen the 12, the 12 men that will carry his ministry, his message uh, with him the rest of his life. And then even beyond that, after Jesus dies, 11 of those 12 are going to go be the first leaders in the early church. Um, He's completely ticked off the religious leaders of the day and the Jewish people because he's performing miracles, he's healing on the Sabbath, he's preaching that the kingdom of God is near, and he's saying or at least hinting that he is the son of God. And so like uh, after the lame man at the pool uh, was healed last week, we talked about the pool of Bethesda, which was down here in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate. You might remember Steve Davis talked about that. He had that healing there. Well, that healing took place on the Sabbath. It, was on a, it would have been a Saturday. So it took place on the Sabbath. You weren't allowed to work on the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders came to him, confronted him with that. And the man he healed uh, that it was on the Sabbath, Jewish law wouldn't allow that. And so Jesus told the religious leaders, well, I only do what my father in heaven tells me to do. And so then that made them mad. And so uh, they were incensed. And so Jesus is uh, a little bit on the run now. He's away from Jerusalem up at Capernaum. uh, And that's where we're going to start today in John chapter 6. We're going to start with verse 1. Just to give you a little uh, background of where we are, Jesus is doing ministry up here. And the people down here are looking for him. In fact, uh, I'm going to show you something here in just a minute that's really interesting. John 6, 1. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. That is the Sea of Tiberias. So he's up here. He lives in Capernaum. He crosses to the far shore. And you might think, well, okay, that's down here somewhere. But that's not exactly accurate. Um, What we think happened is he actually crossed the the lake this way uh, to be near Bethsaida. Uh, My best reference that I have is Morse Lake. Right, that's the closest body of water we have to us, Morse Lake. And when uh, I've done the Cicero Triathlon there before, and when they say you swim across Morse Lake as a part of that, you don't swim from top to bottom. All right, you go this way. And uh, that's what it looks like he did. He went from Capernaum uh, to Bethsaida. Uh, it wasn't a very long trip, uh, but a great crowd of people followed him verse 2, because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. So Jesus and his disciples, they're, they're working hard, they're preaching, they're healing, they're doing God's work, but they still need to get away from time to time. They're trying to get away from the crowd, and that's what they do when they get in the boat uh, and go across uh, the lake, but the crowd followed them there. So that's the context. Verse 3, then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up, he saw a great crowd coming toward him. He said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Now, he probably asked Philip because Philip was from Bethsaida and uh, the nearest town, and so Philip would have known the area better, so he singled him out. Um, Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. 
This is a giant crowd, okay? Just get the context of this. Another of his disciples, verse 8, another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. You know, one of the things that's really cool about this miracle, I think, is that it's, one, it's the only miracle that Jesus performed while on earth that's recorded in all four of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament, four different accounts of Jesus' life uh, written by four different authors with four different perspectives, all saw fit to include this miracle among any of the other ones that he performed in their account of Jesus' life. It kind of ramps up, I think, in my mind, right, the importance of this, and it tells me that Jesus really wants us to learn something uh, from this lesson. But unfortunately for me, um, the first thing I notice is I think that this miracle is mistitled in my Bible. And maybe it is in yours. Uh, it's called Jesus Feeds the 5,000. Right? And in this account we have in John, what we see is it really only says that there are 5,000 men. Okay? But because we have uh, parallel accounts, we see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all make it clear that the number of people there that day was 5,000 men and their families. So we're likely looking at fifteen to 20,000 people on this hillside. Now, here's what's interesting about this. The area around uh, the Sea of Galilee is called Galilee. This whole area, most historians think, probably had forty to 50,000 people living in it at this time. So you've got forty to 50,000 people in it. 15,000 of them are right here uh, with Jesus. Now, so that's a great crowd, right? Why is that? Well, the Passover is near. We get that from our uh, message, right? There is a road, uh, the Via Mars, that Maris, that goes from here, uh, way of the sea, all right? It goes from outside of Israel down through Bethsaida and Capernaum and comes down to Jerusalem. So it's kind of the major highway running from north to south in Israel. Many of these people may have been pilgrims that were on their way to the Passover, now, interestingly enough, this is the only Passover that we get in Scripture that we get to hear that Jesus doesn't go to Jerusalem. You know, we've talked about that uh, week one, I think we talked about that, that many families would go to Jerusalem for the Passover once in their life, but Jesus' family seemed to go every year. Well, this year, uh, the second year of his ministry, we don't get any indication of him going. Why not? Well, because the rulers and the authorities in Jerusalem were after him. Um, they were looking for him. And so he stays up near Capernaum while all these pilgrims are coming through. So you get this big crowd coming through uh, Bethsaida. They stop. They heard about this Jesus, and they want to stop and see what this is all about. So there's this big crowd, fifteen to 20,000 people. Now this makes the miracle that Jesus performed uh, with the five loaves and two fishes even more miraculous. But it really, I think for me, shines a light on the generosity of this boy that we don't know anything about uh, that was willing to share his lunch. I want to put you in his shoes for a moment, okay? I want you to imagine fifteen to 20,000 people. So that'd be like um, you're at Banker's Life Fieldhouse at a sold-out Pacers game, all right? Just imagine you're down uh, in the seats, and uh, you look around, fifteen to 20,000 people around you. That's how big this crowd was. And the PA announcer comes on and says, uh, attention, we are out of food. All of the concession stands are closed. If anyone has any food, uh, we need you. Please raise your hand. 
All right, 15 to 20,000 people. Uh, you look down, and on your lap is uh, you stopped on the way down at Long John Silver's, all right, and you got a two-piece fish and more. All right, two fish and uh, five hush puppies. All right, that's what you've got. Two fish and five hush puppies. You've got it in your lap, and uh, you think, you look around at all these people, and you think, well, I've got food. Should I say anything? But really, how far is this going to go among so many people, right? And so what's got to go through your mind is, I barely brought enough for me. Like, I didn't even get coleslaw. You know, I should have gotten something else. I, I barely got enough for me. How is this going to feed so many people? And so m- my uh, first reaction would be, maybe yours is, that I'm going to just kind of hide this and put it away. I'm going to save that for later because I might need that later. Well, that wasn't this boy's reaction. His response is, okay, here you go. Here's my food. He, he's willing to share it with Jesus to see what Jesus is going to do with it. You know, I mean, think about that. Andrew says, but how far will so few go among so many? Well, this is where we get our first lesson from this story. And these are in your notes. If you picked up a note card on the way in, it's this. God will only bless what you offer him. God will only bless what you offer him. And think about that. Where this miracle ends up is pretty amazing. They end up feeding all these fifteen to 20,000 people, and they end up with 12 baskets of food left over at the end from this five loaves and two fishes. That's amazing. But where it starts is just as amazing. It starts with one boy and the faith to offer his lunch up to Jesus to make something even greater out of it. And think about how this applies to our lives. It's an incredible faith lesson for you and me. And this one act of sacrificial giving provided God everything he needed to, to make this miracle happen, to feed this crowd. Now, could God have fed these people out of nothing? Yeah, I think so. I mean, he's clearly created out of nothing in the past. But often, that's not how God chooses to work. He chooses to take what we offer up to him and use that to make a great impact, right? And so still, how often do we let what we can't do stop us from doing what we can do? And we think, well, I can't feed everybody, so I'll just take this lunch and keep it to myself. But really, in God's hands, that is so much greater. We hold back from God sometimes. And sometimes we hold back because, well, let's be honest, there are areas of our lives that we don't want God in. Right? There are some places we just uh, don't want him, but God's only going to bless what you offer him. And so if you want God to bless your marriage, or you want God to bless your career, or your friendships, or your family, or your school, uh, or your campus, or whatever it is, you've got to offer it up to him first. You've got to relinquish that grip you've got on it. You've got to free your hands from that monster grip you have on whatever that thing is that you're trying to control, that you're trying to manage, and let God have it, because God will only bless what you offer to him. And so this boy gives up his lunch, and you can hear the doubt in the disciples from the beginning of the story. And because it's recorded in all four Gospels, we have kind of an unprecedented 4D uh, look at how this miracle took place, how it went down. So first of all, it's getting late. You know, Matthew says, uh, the book of Matthew says this took place in the evening. Uh, Mark says that it was late in the day. We know the disciples were trying to get away. The reason they came here was to get away from the crowds, and the crowds went and met them there. So they're already tired. They're looking for rest. Uh, They're trying to get away, trying to get some alone time with Jesus. The crowd just kind of pushes their way in. Uh, From other accounts, we can see that most of the day, Jesus has been working. He's been hard at work. He's been preaching. Uh, He's been healing people. He's been telling them about the kingdom of God. The disciples are tired. I mean, you know how it is. We go 65 minutes in here, right? If we go, if we start to get to 70, I can feel the fidgeting start to happen. I can see people looking at their watch or, you know, doing one of these, 
Yeah, it's going to be 70 minutes today, I think. Or I can hear stomachs growling, you know. Well, not today because pancakes. But, I mean, most of the time I can hear, you know, I, I know that people get a little restless when you go long. And Jesus has been doing this. They've been here all day. It's getting close to evening. And they want, they're hungry, they're tired, they want rest. And so I'm going to use my sanctified imagination, okay? This is not in Scripture. But I think here's how to, kind of how their plan went. This is the plan of the disciples. Uh, Jesus... Your sermon this morning was really great. I mean, it was like one of the best. It was so good. Well, and this afternoon, this morning and this afternoon. I mean, the whole, the whole thing was great. And um, that healing thing, whew, amazing. In fact, I've got a little sore on my, oh, never mind. Um, but anyway, we were thinking, the disciples and I, we were talking, and um, the people, the people are hungry. We're okay. We'll, we'll stay with you as long as you want. But the people are hungry, and they're tired, and they're a long way from home, and uh, it's getting late. Lord, why don't, why, don't, why don't you just send them home? And so Jesus is so compassionate, and he's teaching, and he's healing. And my, the way I see this is without even looking up, he's interacting with somebody, and he hears this, and he goes, why don't you give them something to eat? Where, where should we buy bread for all these people? But John tells, him this, tells us this question is just a test because Jesus already knew what he was going to do. He already knew what he was going to do. See, by this point in his ministry, Jesus has started to realize who he is. Um, I think if you read scripture, what you'll see is Jesus, fully God, yet fully man, that Jesus chose while on earth to veil his deity, to not dip into his God powers, okay? To use his humanity, operate only out of his humanity while he was on earth. And in his humanity, he had to read scripture, he had to pray, he had to have the same kind of relationship with the Father that you and I can have, all right? And so he's having this relationship, he's having this prayer time, and he's learning about himself, and he's reading scripture, and he's seeing how he's fulfilled it, and he's realizing who he is. He's realizing that he is the Son of God. He knows by this point, I believe, that the Father's sent him for a purpose. He knows from the healings and the miracles that he's been a part of that he has all the power of the heavenly realm under his authority. He even says back in John 5, just one chapter ago, he says, the son can do nothing by himself, but only what the father shows him. And so Jesus knows what he's going to do here. He knows he's got the power to do that. And because he knows all these things, and because he grew up a good Jewish boy, he likely would have memorized the first five books of our Bible. He knew that his father, the compassionate, loving father, provides for his children. He knew, for instance, for 40 years in the book of Exodus, as the nation of Israel wandered in the desert, God provided water for them out of a rock. He provided uh, manna from heaven that rained down from heaven every night for 40 years so that they would have enough to eat. And when they got tired of the manna, God sent quail on the camp and provided meat for them. He provided so much meat, the Bible says, that they could choke on it because God is a God who provides. And as they picked up the manna, Scripture says that um, every person picked up had just as much as they wanted. Now, that's really important because you see that language reflected in this scripture as well in John 6. Everybody had just as much as they wanted. And it says that those who picked up too much had just enough, and those who um, picked up too little had just enough. Everybody that picked that up. He knows that, that his father has the compassionate, loving heart of a father. And so Jesus remembers this, right? He remembers this story. He remembers that this has happened. And I love food. I realized today that almost all of my illustrations since the beginning of the year have been around food. And I don't know if it has to do with that I've been marathon training or that uh, New Year's resolutions or what it is, but I just keep thinking about food constantly. And so I love food. I love miracles. So I love food miracles, right? So I remember this. Jesus remembers this too. He knew what he was going to do, but the disciples, they didn't remember it. 
At, at this point, for some reason, they don't remember that God can provide anything that they need. And in this moment, they say things like, eight months' wages wouldn't buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Or how far will these things go among so many? And so the picture, I want you to picture this scene here as they deliver this boy's lunch to Jesus. And uh, he says, now sit the people down. So he's got 15,000 people, this one bag of food. How nervous are you if you're a disciple right now? I have 15,000 people. There are 15,000 of them. There's 12 of us. And I'm going to sit them down, and I, which implies that I'm getting ready to feed them. And I know that all we've got is this one little sack of food, Right? How nervous are you? Jesus has, uh, some of the translations say, he sits them down in groups of 50 or 100. So if you picture this, 15,000 people in groups of 50, 300 groups of 50 people uh, sitting on the hillside, uh, 15,000 people, 12 disciples, five loaves of bread, two fish. It just doesn't add up. But fortunately, we're using Jesus' math. Right? And so Jesus' math, it always works out. I mean, just like uh, you've got $20 to your name and it's six days till payday and you don't know how you're going to make it, but somehow it works out, right? Jesus' math always works out. And so Jesus has everybody sit down and, and very importantly, Jesus gives thanks. How often do you stop and give thanks before the miracle even happens? That's what's happening here. Jesus is going to give thanks even before he gives you the miracle, all right? Jesus did that. He gives thanks and then verse 11 Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated. How much? As much as they wanted. As much as they wanted. It's the same language that we see in Exodus with manna. Each person had as much as they wanted. And then watch this, verse 12. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. 12 baskets, 12 disciples. Could be an accident, but I don't think so. Why did it happen that way? I mean, all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all capture this seemingly insignificant detail. How much food's left over? Who cares? Everybody got to eat, right? That's the miracle. 12 baskets, 12 disciples. I think... It's because Jesus wanted each one to have a doggy bag so that they could remember God's faithfulness. Like we all need a token to remember God's faithfulness, right? I think a second takeaway from this story is that we need to remember God's faithfulness. We need to remember that. Sometimes we get in a difficult situation and it helps us to remember that God is faithful. It helps us to look back on the past when we were in another situation. Sometimes, do you ever do this? You look back. And you think, remember how hard that time was? It seems like eons ago. But we went through that really difficult time. And now I look back and I can see God's hand on me every step of that process. Right? I didn't feel it at the time. I didn't see it at the time. But now I can see it. But now I get into another situation and I forget all about that. Right? I forget how God carried me through the last thing because this isn't the last thing. This is the new thing. And he's, he maybe can't have the same power or do the same thing that he did back then in this thing. Right? And so we do that. We forget God's faithfulness. That's what's happened here. And so Jesus gives them these 12 baskets to help them remember God's faithfulness. In fact, here's what I love about this miracle. I'm sorry I'm speeding up a little bit, but I'm getting really excited because this miracle is one of the few miracles we see repeated in Scripture. In fact, just a few weeks or maybe a couple months later, we see in Matthew 15 where there's another big crowd around. And, and it's 4,000 men this time and their families. And uh, it's getting late in the day. And, uh, and uh, the people are getting hungry. And you know what the disciples have the nerve to ask? Lord, where will we find food to feed all these people? Like, are you serious? 
do you remember? You don't. And so I think Jesus gave them these baskets so that they would have a, 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 a token to remember God's faithfulness. But just like all the other miracles that we've talked about so far, this miracle is not really about the food. I mean, the 5,000 people and their men and their families, they got hungry again, right? That, this didn't feed them for life. And we've said all along through this series that when we focus on the miracle, we focus on the wrong thing. And what I love about this one is Jesus is going to tell us exactly what we mean by that, all right? After this miracle, people are so impressed by Jesus, they realize that he's a prophet and they try to make him king, by force, the Bible says, that they tried to force Jesus to become the king of Israel. So Jesus runs away. He goes off by himself up into the wilderness. He sends his disciples back on the boat to go to Capernaum. Something amazing happens there. We're going to talk about that next week. But what I want to talk about is what happens after that. Because what happens after that, the crowd goes looking for Jesus. They go back to Capernaum because they know his home's there. And many of them are headed that way anyway. And they find him there. And Jesus tells him this. Skip down to verse 26. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. I mean, again, how often do we look for Jesus because of what he can give to us? That's what they're doing. And then verse 35, Jesus declared, he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And so he starts interacting with the crowd and telling them this. And then he continues down in verse 53, Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. And here's what happened when he taught that. The... uh, the Jesus for King movement disappeared. It went away. Let me, let me tell you why. There's a couple things uh, around that verse. Um, first of all, Jesus is pointing ahead uh, to communion. He's pointing ahead to the next time that he'll sit down at this meal with his disciples and he'll sit around a table and he'll tell them, hey, uh, this bread is my body. It's broken for you. You know, this wine is my blood. It's spilled for you. He's pointing ahead to that. He's saying, hey, some of you are going to have communion with me. You're going to be with me uh, for the rest of your life, but some of you aren't. Second thing is when you, uh, in, in ancient times especially, when you uh, killed an animal, you would use all of it. You would eat the flesh and the blood, and you would uh, take all of that. And Jesus is saying, hey, if you're going to be with me, you need to take all of me right? You need my flesh and my blood. It's all, it all comes together. It's all a package. And so what happens is people are confused. People are sickened. This idea that maybe it's even a cultish thing. Is he really talking about really eating his flesh and drinking his blood? They're confused. They're sickened. They didn't get it. They ran away. John 6.66 tells us this. It says that from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. They didn't get it. And if you read the whole conversation, you see what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about believing in him, in the totality of him, in all of him, in the, in the wholeness of Jesus. For him, eating is believing. Drinking is believing. He says, he who believes in me has eternal life. If you believe in all of me, if you take all of my flesh and drink all of my blood, you have eternal life. You have to believe. You have to abide in Christ. When you eat his flesh and drink his blood, you believe in the saving power of his death on the cross. Now, the disciples didn't know that yet. Jesus hadn't died, and no matter how many times that he told them, told the 12, hey, I'm going away pretty soon, and where I'm going, you can't go. They didn't get it. Okay, they didn't know what he was really talking about. And so 
666 tells us many of the disciples left Jesus. They walked away. They, They turned around and walked because wanting Jesus to do something for us and wanting Jesus are two different things. And so I just want you to imagine the rejection that Jesus felt in that moment. I mean, clearly in his deity, as fully God, he knew uh, he had work to do and he was doing what was required. But in his humanity, I mean, you can see that he felt rejected and, uh, and he felt the sting of that, right? And so he turns to the 12, the 12 guys who are left, and he says, do you want to leave too? And you hear that? Do you feel the pain in that? But then listen to what happens next. Peter speaks up and responds. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is so good. This is so important. I mean, you have to get this right. If you get nothing else in your life right, if your marriage is a disaster, if you flunk out of school, if your career is a mess, but you get this right, you are miles ahead of most people. And on the other hand, if you get everything else in your life right, if everything is perfect and you don't get this right, you've gotten it all wrong. You've missed the boat. Because what Jesus told the crowd, what Peter articulated so well, is that Jesus alone offers eternal life. Well, what does this mean? Well, Peter may not have liked this teaching, but he knew Jesus has the words of eternal life. And so many times we don't like a teaching of Jesus, and so we ignore it or we turn away from him. We say, I want Jesus, I like this part of Jesus, I like the touchy-feely Jesus, but I don't want this hard teaching. But Jesus said, if you want eternal life, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. You'll take in all of him, his example, his teaching, his death, his resurrection. There are people that have been coming to church for a long time, to this church, but they've never come to believe that Jesus is the Holy One of God. Why not? Where else would you go? Who else has the words of eternal life? I mean, I think you can see from this interaction, Jesus calls for a decision. You know, this teaching, uh, this one event marks a change in in a word that we see in Scripture. Uh, Before this chapter, and specifically this verse, John 6.66, where many of his disciples left him, that word disciple was used to designate anybody who was following Jesus. But after this, you know, so if if you traveled with Jesus, if you ate with him, if you listened to his teaching, then you're called a disciple. But after this verse, the word disciple is used much more selectively. In the book of John, you'll see it almost disappear, except when it's talking about the 12. It's only used to declare a genuine disciple of Jesus, someone who uh, accepts all of him, someone who follows him everywhere, someone who truly puts Jesus as the priority in their lives. Maybe it's time for you to stop being a follower of Jesus and start being a disciple of Jesus. What's the difference? Well, a follower comes and goes as he pleases. The disciple leaves everything to follow him. A a disciple is sold out. Jesus has become her all-consuming passion. Every waking moment is filled with thoughts of how to please him. A a follower picks and chooses what they like, but a disciple hangs on every word. A follower spends time with Jesus. A disciple gives his life to Jesus. You know, my, my first memory of God in my entire life was when I was eight years old, I went to a, um, every day to a daycare center called Park Atat. Park Atat, that's what it was called. It was part of a church, of church ministry. And uh, it was just like every other daycare center I'd ever been to, except 
at two o'clock every day, we got a snack. It was usually those little butter cookies, those little round flour butter cookies that you can put on your fingers like rings. We got five of those and we get a little cup of Hawaiian punch and that was our snack. And we'd hear a story about Jesus. But that was all the God I ever got. There was no indication that he was supposed to be part of my life or part of my decision-making process or that I could have a relationship with him, that I could walk with him. None of that. Parkatot at two o'clock was all the God I got. And for so many of you, like this church has become your parkatot. You know that, that you've let your church attendance define your relationship with Christ. Like your relationship with Jesus is based on what happens in this room for one hour once a week. And that's not enough. You need to dive deeper. You need to abide in him. You need to pray to him. You need to spend time with him. Offer everything up to him. You know, for some of you, your task is much simpler. You may be here and you don't know why. Like something keeps drawing you here and you think maybe it's the music or maybe it's your friends or maybe it's the teaching, but really, maybe it's time that you admit that what's drawing you here is Jesus, that he's pursuing you, he's after you, he, he, he wants to have a relationship with you, he wants you to abide in him. And for still others, for too long, your relationship with Christ, your Christianity has been based about around you and what God can do for you, what Jesus will do for you. And for you, it's time to go reach others to offer up your friendships to God and start having hard conversations with your friends about Jesus. You, you need to start making disciples as if the kingdom of God is near because it is. Find one or two people you can invest in and start reading together and praying together, studying together, start doing what Jesus told us to do in his last days. Go and make disciples. Don't let this church become your parkatot. Become a disciple, but that means you need to be ready to accept all of Jesus and know that he alone offers eternal life. Let's pray together. God, I'm thankful for um, your teaching, for your word, and um, Lord, I just, I'm so convicted sometimes that I, I want to be a Christian, I want to be in a relationship with you because of what you offer me and how you've blessed my life and um, the things that you can do for me and not who you are. And I know that I'm not alone. I just pray uh, that as we come into a time of worship and as we leave here and we go and live our lives, God, that you would convict us in the areas that we need, where we need to abide in you and remain in you and spend time with you and just help us to desire that, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.